I'm Richard Vincenti Jr., and this is Episode 2 of the Geek with Envy Podcast. Alright, so let's get right into this one. Got a lot of stuff that we have to cover here because, man, it's been a really busy week. Uh, actually, it's been a really busy two weeks, if you haven't noticed. Uh, we had to delay. We were going to do this podcast weekly, and, but I ended up getting a little bit sick. I had a kind of a cough that uh, basically didn't allow me to produce anything useful as far as podcast content goes. I couldn't get uh, could get myself together. Uh, just too much coughing going on there, but I am feeling a lot better, and we are ready to go, so let's jump right into this. Start out with the Red Bull Stratos project, which we posted. If you were following us on October 10th, we had a post that had some pretty cool stuff on it. We had some illustrations there, uh, some pictures of the pressure suit and helmet with some descriptions on there, the balloon and capsule from the project with some details on it, some specs describing the balloon and capsule and the whole process. And we ended up going right up to uh, having a embedded stream that you were able to watch as Felix Baumgartner ascended to his destination height, which turned out to be about 128,000 feet above the Earth's surface. And you were also able to watch him prepare and eventually jump out of this capsule. It was absolutely amazing to watch. And, man, I have to tell you, the whole time I'm watching this thing, I felt, I felt it felt intense. It was wild. Uh, I was actually nervous at some points during this thing. I mean, it was amazing to see, and to see him get all the way up to the top, and I remember a particular moment where he reached uh, the altitude where they were ready to go. They started letting some of the helium out, they were at the height they wanted to be at, it was time for, it was go time. And I remember watching Felix as he prepared to jump, and I remember feeling just this intense feeling, like, putting myself in his shoes, just basically, you know, feeling anxious for this guy, and how amazing this, this actually was, that he was doing this, and there's no way I could do something like that, there's no way I could not uh, work myself up to do that, I don't know how Felix is able to accomplish these kinds of things, I don't know how he's able to mentally prepare for these types of things, obviously he's had a ton of of jumping, skydiving experience, and things like that behind him. He's he's done some uh, two prior tests with the Red Bull Stratos, Stratos program, uh, Red Bull Stratos project, and so he's pretty comfortable at this point, but even he seemed uh, pretty blown away by the whole thing once they, they got on that uh, third and final ascent, which was way up there, 128,000 feet. I broke the sound barrier. How amazing is that? The guy broke a sound barrier, man. That's crazy. Over 700 miles an hour, this guy's flying. No machinery at all. You know, just you, a guy, 
one person, a human being, breaking the sound barrier. Truly amazing stuff. Beautiful sight. Videos are amazing. Just everything all together, absolutely awesome. Red Bull Stratos program, coolest thing I've seen in in a long time, especially uh, something that involves the space space program or something that deals with space research. I think that's one thing that uh, I'd like to see a lot more of, a lot more focus on space. It really is uh, truly important that we keep our eyes to the skies as it is um, and really work a little bit harder on our efforts. I don't think we've we've put as much into it as we used to, you know, and there's really a lot of stuff out there that we need to know. There's a lot of stuff to learn out there. And just space exploration in general is something we need to continue. I know that we've got uh, got the rover on Mars there driving around, checking things out. That's huge. I think that's awesome. I hope that one day we will be able to, to reach Mars. I think that would be something that's worthwhile. I think there's a lot to... I think maybe even having some bases there, living on different places, different planets. I think that would be really cool. I think that's something that could be useful to us. I mean, even if just having resources, other resources that we can get from these other planets too is something that's huge. Uh, but overall, again, uh, something like this with Felix Gartner and his amazing efforts, uh, not to just break records, but also to work on improved spacesuit design and research. Uh, there's talk about having you know some type of emergency systems in place on space stations where they can just literally jump I guess or if somebody's outside and working on something and they begin to fall uh, this would be one way we would know if they were going to be able to survive or not by creating technology that can protect these astronauts in situations where they're not inside a capsule or anything like that. They're just them in the spacesuit falling towards Earth. Is it possible for them to survive? Well, we're pushing the limits here. And that's kind of what this whole thing was all about. So, you know, and it was amazing to watch unfold live. It was absolutely incredible. Never forget that. One of the coolest things I've seen in a while. So, anyway, moving on, I wrote an article uh, on the 11th actually about handheld gaming and mobile quietly moving in, as the title says. It was something that, well, I went back, I went way back. It's one of the first times I ever used a handheld gaming device. Now remember, this is my personal experience, because I was rather young. I was in the 80s, the mid-80s. Uh, the mid to late 80s when I was using my first handheld gaming device and for me personally it was actually a Frogger game on a Tiger electronic handheld gaming device you know Tiger made a lot of handheld gaming devices they made a lot of titles like it. I think they did Street Fighter something like that I believe so you know what I'm talking about these little plastic handheld games with the little pill shaped buttons on them they had the LCD screens, the black and white LCD screens that, uh, you know, they didn't have backlighting or anything like that. It was just preset animations 
those kinds of things. That, that was my first actual experience. So relatively low-tech, considering the technology, even then that was around for those times, because we had the Nintendo Game Boy, which was actually the next really great handheld gaming device that I was introduced to. And boy, I mean, who doesn't who doesn't recognize the Game Boy, right? I mean, that was truly an amazing device. Awesome gaming content on that thing. I mean, it really is a historic moment for, for gaming. That The Game Boy really is something quite spectacular. And I remember the next thing I got from after the Game Boy was actually the Game Gear, which was Sega's answer to the Game Boy. It had a little bit a, a better, wasn't a dot matrix based LCD screen, it was actually a color LCD screen, which worked pretty well. It was pretty bright, had really great color, really great graphics. I think it was somewhat ahead of its time, actually, and I mentioned that in the article, too. I, I think it was really kind of ahead of its time when it first came out. But eventually, Nintendo stuck around, and they got better, and Game Boy got better, and, well, Game Gear ceased to exist, as uh, in a lot of ways Sega ceased to exist. So, But still, nonetheless, pushing the technology forward, all these devices contribute. Whether they're bad or not, whether they succeed or not, whether the marketing is good enough or not, all these things actually push the industry forward. So it's important to note them. And they are part of my gaming history, so I'm definitely going to talk about those. But as time goes on, we started seeing color Game Boys and Game Boy Advance and things like that, and these things got better and better. But not by much. I mean, they were improving, but it wasn't like leaps and bounds. Nothing that I can remember, anyway. And then I started to think back to what else besides Game Boy was going on in him in handheld gaming market. And we had the PSP. That didn't come out until 2004. I mean, there was other things going on around that time. Well, one of the other major technologies that were handheld were cell phones. Cell phones had games. They weren't very good games, but they had games like Snake and things like that, and Tetris, but weren't much better than anywhere near Game Boy. These things were very simple, very simple. I wouldn't even consider them competition. They weren't competition. They were just additional things to put in your phone to make the phone more appealing. In fact, actually, they weren't even really talked about. It was more or less something that was hidden next to all your your calculators and tip calculators and things like that on the phone. It wasn't even it wasn't even a selling point of the phone at that time. It was just something there. But we were checking them out. People like me were digging into the phones and we found these games. It's terrible, really. I mean, Snake's a great game. It's a classic, but I mean, by the standards of mobile gaming, I mean, just terrible, right? And things started to get a little bit better, though started seeing some color LCD screens in the cell phone market and cell phones were slowly starting to become more advanced started to see the use of Java on these phones for gaming and things like that it was looking a lot better and uh, it was really nice but again nothing very special it was just an additional little feature and all of a sudden something changed 
something big changed in handheld gaming. And what was it? What was going on around then? What was going on in the 2000s? What happened that started to change everything? Well, I thought about it, and I thought about my personal experience anyway, and I think a lot of us share this experience, is the iPod. The iPod came around. This new amazing device came out, and yeah, it was for music, and it was great, and it did have some games on it initially, just like cell phones did, but that thing evolved pretty quickly, and before you know it, we've got the video version of the iPod, and it had some pretty good graphics on it, and heck, it actually had some pretty cool games on it. Games that looked almost as good as Game Boy, right, at the time? Some pretty cool stuff. Now you've got PSP floating around. Now you're talking about the PSP era. And wow, that was a leap forward. That was pretty cool. PSP brought this really great 3D gaming experience to the handheld market. It was amazing. Now things start to change a lot. The iPhone comes out. All of a sudden we've got power, mobile power, like we've never had before. Our processors are getting faster and faster, and we can crunch more numbers, which means we can put better graphics, more polygons inside these handheld devices. Now we've got PS Vita, now we've got iPads, and iPhones, and Android phones, and they're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. The games that we can play on these things are awesome. In fact, I'd argue that most people are playing games on things like iPads and Android phones, and Samsung tablets, the Nexus 7, whatever you're using for your mobile needs, whether it's an iPad or an iPhone or an Android device, whatever, you're most likely gaming on that thing. I mean, think about Angry Birds. That's huge. That's a huge game. Like, everybody knows what Angry Birds is, right? Well, what are you playing it on, your PC? No, I don't think so. You're probably playing it on a mobile device. And it really has changed gaming, not just in the mobile market. I mean, it's changed gaming all around and how we game and how we interact with things. Mobile technology has actually changed our desktops. It's actually changed our laptops and how we use them. But it's also changed how we game. And it was pretty amazing to sit back and look at this because I don't think a lot of us take the time to actually think about how powerful these handheld devices really are and what they're doing. And each iteration of, of these devices is, is two to three times better than the device before it. And some of the demos that I've seen, even on the iPhone 5 and things like that, are, are just absolutely incredible what they're able to do with these processors now and the graphics capability and they're doing them at high resolutions too on these small screens it's just absolutely stunning but again it was just an observational thing observation of handheld gaming and how mobile phones became a part of that where they were never really a part of that before and how they've kind of merged and created a, a competition for handheld gaming that wasn't there before. 
and how quickly that competition has pushed forward everything in that market, in the mobile market. So pretty cool stuff. It really is a shining example of how competition drives forward the technology. It really does. It pushes everything forward. Super necessary. So it kind of makes you look at uh, these lawsuits that go on between these big companies and them trying to shut each other down, you know, and it really makes you wonder what that does to the the creativity out there. So just something to think about, you know, how quickly these things evolve and how far we really have come and how much farther we have to go. So just a pretty cool pretty cool way to look at things. Another thing that I was looking at and I wanted to share with everybody, this is something that I, I check out regularly and uh, I sometimes ask myself, hey, what if anybody else knows about it or how many other people know about this? Maybe my audience doesn't know about this. So I'll throw these things up here. Like the Verita Veritasium channel on YouTube. And one of the things that really caught my attention was this cool video about that they posted about the Slinky. It was a slow motion video of a slinky falling. And it was pretty amazing what I saw. I, what I didn't expect to see was this slinky not falling the way it should. It looked like something was completely wrong with the universe. And it was a great video. It really gets you thinking. It really gets your mind going. It, it makes you question things. It makes you really look deeper into the things around you. It really makes you analyze them. It makes you, it gets your mind going. And these are the kinds of things that I like, things that uh, get me thinking, which is pretty much everything. But these videos, these guys are great. And they definitely are something that I enjoy watching every day. So, you know, as a geek, science is a daily part of our lives. And as I stated, it's really cool to see science put on display in a beautiful way. It's showcasing science, and that's what these guys do. So if you go over to our post for Veritasium, you can see the awesome HD slinky slow-mo video that shows some pretty awesome physics at work. And you can also go straight to their YouTube page and check out more videos that they have, their YouTube channel, is actually linked right there on the post and you can see all the cool stuff that they have going on over there love those guys absolutely love those guys I have more stuff to share with you going forward and I will continue to post things as I see things I'm always finding new websites that are just as geeky as the last one and I will be posting those and sharing that with you and if you have something that uh, you would like us to share with the community then please feel free to email me and let me know and we can share that with our audience because information is power, right? So definitely hit me up, richardvincenti at geekwithenvy.com if you have anything you want to share. We will throw it right up there on our Facebook page and maybe even put together a post for it, especially if it needs some attention, right? Um, also, I'd like to point out we did, uh, we actually launched something new on the website that we didn't have previously, and that is a rating system. 
And that's something I wanted to put in place for a little while now, and I was just trying to tweak and find the correct way to implement a rating system, and I, I think I found one that I'm happy with. And it's being used. I've already gotten some feedback on it, and it already seems to be working pretty well. And that is, is the new Keek with Envy rating system. And I would encourage you guys to use that uh, five-star rating system on all the posts that we do because it really gives me a kind of uh, gauge on what you guys are liking and what you're not liking, what you guys are engaging on, what you're not engaging on. Um, and that really helps me as far as guiding the content for the website because I really like to know what you guys are interested in seeing because ultimately... Uh, it's important to understand you guys and, and what you want me to provide or what you want me to focus on because I have a ton of content but if it's not uh, interesting to you, you know, I want to know. So I'm going to throw stuff out there. I know that not everything's going to be the most favored by everybody but you know, regardless, I like to know what you guys are thinking about things. And So the new rating system's in place. You'll notice that when you click on a post you will see the rating system just under the title on the left-hand side. Go ahead and give it as many stars as you want. And that will be a pretty good indicator to you and other readers on the uh, subject. And hopefully you guys uh, like that. I'd also like to see some more comments, too. Those are always awesome. I've seen a lot of new comments on there on the website. I've seen a lot of comments on Facebook, which is awesome. But I'd like to see them on the website, too, because that really can open up conversations and if people see these comments, they can see the related content right above it. So they can jump in and pull right from the article and put those tidbits into their comments and things like that. It's just a really great way, a really great place to have the comments too. So I appreciate the comments on Facebook, but feel free to throw some up there in the post too on the website. And I'm actually seeing that. I have seen that. So that's pretty cool. I've seen a couple new posts on the or new comments on the latest post that I put up there, so I'm happy to see that too. I like to see interaction with the website. Because oh. you end up, what ends up happening, the reason why I like to see these comments on the website, or anywhere really, but the website in particular, is because, again, the content is right there, right above the con comments themselves. And also, in a, it creates conversations and it extracts other people's opinions, which are extremely important to see multiple sides of things, multiple points of view. And I like to see all that stuff unfold right there. And it, it makes the content deeper. It really does. It can add, it has a potential to add to the content what you guys are posting and your discussions. That is content in itself. You, someone will read the article and they'll see the comments below. I know you guys do this and man, it really gets you thinking. goes, oh, I never thought of that. Or oh, yeah, that's great, you know, or, hey, that guy's this or that, you know, and it really, it's cool to see that engagement, so I encourage you to to leave comments. Also, a little funny thing that happened, Origin. Uh, these guys are basically, if you haven't heard of Origin, it's a digital download client for, for EA games, for Electronic Arts, and Initially, they were giving away $20 to users who participated and in and completed a survey. But unfortunately, it turns out that the code that they gave out was a multiple-use code, and it didn't take very long for people to catch on to this, and they started sharing the code across the Internet, 
and lo and behold you have tons of users getting free money for surveys they didn't take and then they go right off and start buying things and yeah it was a mess so that code was quickly removed shut down whatever you want to call it taken out of uh, service and kind of went into damage control after that I guess if you want to call it that and it's unknown, still unknown at this point. I don't think if, if users who redeemed the code were able to keep anything or not, maybe they just let it go. It's kind of their mistake. Maybe they just said whatever, depending on how many people actually redeem that code. I think that may change, but at this point I haven't heard of any changes. I thought it was kind of interesting. Sometimes these things go wrong, and it kind of reminded me of my mentality on surveys in general, which is, there are times where I feel like I really want to contribute and take a survey. Certain sites where I really think need improvement and I see the survey thing come up, I'm like, hey, this is a great way to let them know, hey, this this part of it is crap. You guys need to fix this. Or this part of it's great. I really like this part. Don't remove this part. This is good. But most of the time, and it's true for I think of a lot of us, we only take the survey because we are hoping at the end of the survey we're going to get something. And in this case, these users did. But in a lot of cases, we're thoroughly disappointed. To, you know, we take these long surveys just to find at the end we're not getting anything for them. Now, I know that that's not the whole point, but come on. Who doesn't want a little something for your time, right? I mean, we are providing valuable feedback. Uh, for websites like Origin and things like that, and I think a little something would be nice. But again, no big deal. Kind of a funny thing though that happened, and hopefully these users don't, you know, hope they don't get it taken away. I think it's an honest mistake, and yeah, they took advantage of it. But hopefully it wasn't too many people, and hopefully they'll get to keep the stuff. I don't know. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Do you think they should get to keep the twenty dollars that they? They got from the coupon code or whatever, from the redemption code that was sent around. I do. I mean, if we're talking millions of dollars here, maybe that's a little different, but I think it's just kind of we made a mistake and just let it go, right? Another thing that I posted on is wine. Do you know anything about wine? Do you like wine? I don't mind wine. It's not so bad. I don't really drink wine. Kind of only wine that I really like or any type of wine is really champagne. I'm not a real big wine guy. More of a beer guy, to be honest with you. But we're not talking about the beverage. No, no, no. We're talking about wine. Wine for Linux and OS X, right? What is wine? Well, basically, wine is, well, it's not an emulator, technically. Okay, wine is basically a program that allows you to play games that are designed for Windows on other operating systems like OS X and Linux. And it's really awesome. I've used it on Linux. I've used multiple versions of Linux, multiple multiple distributions, I'm sorry, of Linux. And I've used Wine on many different distros and it works out really well uh, no matter what game I seem to be playing. And there's an OS X implementation of that too, which I mention here. But one of the questions that some people ask is why use Wine when we have things like Boot Camp? Well, Boot Camp is nice and it works really well, but there's a lot of times where it can be annoying to reboot your system. 
to play a game. Sometimes you don't really want to have to manage an, a, an entire OS, an entirely separate OS that takes up disk space and things like that. So you'd rather just be able to run your games right inside your, let's say, OS X environment. And then Wine can help you do that. Now, for Linux, it's a lot easier to set up Wine. But, and I have instructions on the post here for that. On OS X, it's slightly different. And one of the other things, and there is a way to do it, and I did offer, I did put these step-by-step -step instructions on how to do that in that post, but I also mentioned another program where you don't have to do really anything except for install one application, and that is called Crossover. Now, Crossover is not free. It, dis it does have a short trial, so you can check it out to see if your games that you enjoy are working. Again, this is for OS X. It actually sells for $39.95, $49.95, and $59.95, depending on the package that you buy. And I think it's well worth it if you're if you're a gamer and you use OS X. It really will save you a lot of headaches. They do have quite a bit of support for many different types of games. It's really great. It, and again, Wine is actually part of Crossover. It's, it's how it works, essentially. They work together, so it's actually really nice. And Wine, something awesome to use if you plan on gaming on Linux or OS X. So, another awesome thing going on, Apple. Apple is to hold a special event on October 23rd where they will be making some major announcements. Now, most of us have been expecting to see a mini version of the iPad, the iPad Mini, which should better align Apple to compete with Amazon and Google. So, it obviously would make sense to see Apple offer a broad array of tablet solutions in order to kind of saturate the market with different price points, sizes, and features to try to pull in these prospective owners, tablet owners, that may be on the fence about which tablet to buy. And at this point, no one else is really sure what else Apple is going to talk about. We know the iPad Mini is probably, you know, a given at this point. I think I'm pretty sure that's going to be a headliner, right? But I'd like to see some things. Now these are just things I'm just taking guesses here. I'd like to, or maybe it's really just a hope that they will talk about some updates to the other Mac lineup that we have, the desktop and the Mac Mini. So. They haven't seen any love in a while, and I think it's overdue. So maybe we'll see some of that stuff coming out uh, at this event on October 23rd in San Jose, California. So right now, I guess we can only speculate on what will be sh seen there. But again, hopefully we see some more uh, Ivy Bridge processors put into these uh, newer Macs and kind of give everything an overhaul. I've heard some rumors about a thinner iMac, so that'd be kind of cool to see that too. So, how can you tell if you are taking advantage of USB 3.0? Do you even know what USB 3.0 is? Have you heard about it? Do you know anything about that? Some people do, some people don't. Well, USB 3.0 is the latest standard in USB, 
and it can transmit up to 5 gigabits per second. It's super, super fast. It's a relatively new technology, so not all computers have it. So you may not even have it on your own system. There's a lot of ways to tell if you have it, but you're most likely not going to know by just looking at the ports on your computer. Because USB 3.0 is backwards compatible with USB 2.0. And they look identical. The ports look identical. So one of the first ways, the easiest ways you can tell is to actually use your operating system itself. And if you have Microsoft Windows, you can right-click My Computer, then click Manage, and then open the Device Manager. And you are, again, looking for USB, and then you want to look for USB 3.0 somewhere in the hardware description. Now for OS 10 on the Mac, you will click the Apple logo in the top left of the Finder bar, click About This Mac, then More Info, and then click System Report. And again, you're looking for USB 3.0 somewhere in the hardware description. If you've bought your computer within the last year, you probably have USB 3.0. I think it's safe to say, then maybe not. So you want to check into that. Some systems actually have a blue USB port on the side, which I've seen used for USB 3.0. And the other thing is, too, you need to make sure that the devices, even if you do have USB 3.0 on your computer, you have to make sure the devices are USB 3.0 in order to get the maximum speed out of your device. So for instance, uh, I recently purchased a new external hard drive and it is USB 3.0 and it works really well. It's super fast and you should definitely look into USB 3.0 if you don't have it. There's also other ways to upgrade your computer. If you have a desktop you can definitely get a PCIe uh, card that will have a couple of USB 3.0 ports on it and you can get that installed. I definitely recommend doing that because USB 3.0, especially if you're dealing with a lot of data transfer, yeah, yeah, 5 gigabits per second is a maximum theoretical, but it moves. Believe me, it moves really fast. So definitely should take advantage of that. I mentioned some cool stuff in the post, uh, kind of going back in the day to when, uh, the early days of USB and actually before USB, my gosh, do you remember a world before Universal Serial Bus? Seriously, it was brutal. We had so many different ports, so many different ways to connect things, so many different things on the back of that computer. We had the PS2 for the mouse and for the keyboard. We had our RS-232 connectors. I mean, it was just wacky, right? I mean, we had no set standards. It was just crazy stuff. I talked about things like the Gravis gamepad. That was one thing that I used to have. It used to plug into a port, the MIDI port on my sound card. So how weird is that? I mean, really, if you really think about this, really strange stuff like that. You know, we had really goofy ways to connect things. No set standard. And then USB came around and it was a little goofy at first. We had some problems with USB bridging and things like that, but it was well worth it. I would say I think USB is pretty much dominated now in 
well, it's obvious why, because we had a really terrible, unorganized way of utilizing ports and creating things. And it's nice to have a standard that everyone can follow. So USB, truly amazing. Really glad it's here. And 3.0, it's super fast and it's awesome, right? So another thing I noticed too in the news was that the hacker Comex is no longer with Apple and if you don't know who Comex is he is the uh, hacker that basically created jailbreaking jailbreak me you remember jailbreak me I think most of us do anybody who's jailbroken their iPhone probably knows what this is well yeah Comex is the guy Nicholas Allegra is his real name also known as Comex uh, was actually offered a chance to intern at Apple. Apple was quite interested in obtaining his talent because he was able to just dance around the security features that they put in place on these things, on these Apple devices, like it was nothing. And he even describes it as being just coming to him, basically. He does it with ease. And of course you'd want a guy like that on your side, right? Because it uh, can really show... Have you find it's an easy way to find out what holes you have in your security and get them fixed. And this guy's the guy to do it, right? Well, it turns out it's been about a year now, a little over a year. He joined Apple in 2011 as an intern, and he no longer works with them, he's no longer associated with them, reportedly because of an email that he forgot to reply to. Apparently, Apple is trying to reach out to him to continue his employment, as you can say, with Apple. And because he didn't respond in time, they decided to part ways with him. Now, he did describe, uh, or he did say that there were a few other reasons why he was no longer with them, but basically cited that the email was the main reason. I thought that was pretty interesting, so I kind of like to see how that turns out. I wonder if he will be back with Apple anytime soon. Maybe they can work some things out. I think it would be beneficial to them to have him there, but then again, we don't know everything that goes on there the day to day, but just from an outside perspective, I think that uh, obviously he's got quite a brilliant mind, so I'm sure he's of use. Hopefully they can work that out. So I had a chance to look at some stats. I went out there and I started looking at usage stats. I have compiled a few and I ended up landing on StatCounter who takes global statistics of web usage of what browsers people are using to browse the web. And there was a snapshot from 2011 to 2012 that I posted and it was pretty interesting to see Internet Explorer still in with a sizable lead now, I've seen conflicting reports on this, but and this was the latest report, was that uh, Internet Explorer was ahead with Firefox right behind, followed by Chrome, then Safari, then Opera, and then the always the other on the list there, which might be an unknown OS or something that wasn't trackable at the time. But it was pretty uh, interesting to see that. I mean, I test out a lot of browsers myself, and... I personally find that Firefox or Safari were kind of my sweet spot. I, I like those two browsers. I did use Ex Internet Explorer for quite some time, but I started running into more issues. 
uh, with applications failing, web applications and stuff, and just overall really buggy. I don't know what happened. There was a there was a time where Internet Explorer was actually working okay for me. I know they get a lot of flack for being crappy, but there was a while there where Internet Explorer was doing okay, but right now I'm more of a Safari slash Firefox guy. And when it comes down to it, I'm basically looking for four major factors or looking at four major factor, factors when I choose a browser, and that's stability, speed, simplicity, and security. I like my browser to basically stay out of the way of my browsing experience. I really just want the content to be the main focus. I don't really care about a lot of extra bells and whistles. I just want to be able to bookmark things. I want to be able to have, you know, as few crashes as possible. I obviously do a lot of work through my web browser, to, you know, with HTML and working on the website and logging into servers and things like that and manipulating files. So I just need it to be reliable, I need it to be secure, and I need it to get out of the way. So that's uh, basically what I'm looking for in a web browser, so I don't know what your needs are, but I thought those stats were pretty interesting. So I went ahead and posted them out there, and obviously they're going to change from day to day, but I thought it was kind of strange at first, when I looked at it at first, seeing Internet Explorer in the lead, but then I realized, you know, Internet Explorer comes bundled basically with the most popular operating system in the world, and it's just kind of automatically there, so I can understand how it would be pretty popular, right? I don't know if you had a chance to see this or not over the weekend, but the Orionid meteor shower took place. Where I live, it was cloudy, so I really didn't get it. A chance to see too much of it but there was no no problem there as we saw we had a live stream from NASA so we could watch the meteor shower there and we posted that on the website so hopefully some of you enjoyed that it looks like uh, we got uh, some comments there about it and we got some quite a few page views on that so that's pretty cool you guys seem pretty interested in that happened over the weekend uh, you were able to see approximately 15 to 20 meteors every hour, so it was a pretty active event. I saw a few on the live stream cam, and it was interesting to see, or interesting to think about whenever you see these things, that they're moving at 100,000 miles per hour, you know, flying across the sky. And anytime there's a celestial event like this, I get really excited. But as usual, there's almost always a cloudy sky or something obstructing my view. And as was the case this time, but I thought it was cool that uh, NASA had a, again, a live stream of the sky and the meteor event. And I was able to tune in and check that out, so that was pretty cool. Again, that was posted live on our website. And we will be doing things like that in the future. Whenever we can stream something live like that, uh, we will definitely have that posted on the website. I also posted something about watching shows online, uh, particularly the next day after they air. And this is something that's changed recently, and I didn't really notice because I do watch a lot of online content, streaming online content from uh, sites like Fox.com and CBS and things like that, because there's a lot of content on there I do enjoy. But I noticed as we got, went into fall and we were going into the new seasons, I found, when I went to go to one of my favorite episodes, that there was a lock next to it, and I couldn't access the content. 
And so I went around and I started checking, do I need to sign in? Do I need to do something? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? I want to watch my show. Well, I need to prove that I have a cable provider that provides television for me in order to watch these shows. And I thought, wow, this sucks. And I really thought about it and went, hey, you know what's really, really weird is that I'm already paying the cable company for my internet connection, so why doesn't that count? You know what I mean? So it was kind of a weird thing. It's kind of frustrating. So now you, turns out you can't watch them next day anymore, at least on Fox.com. Other sites you, I found that you still can. I don't know if that's going to change, but Fox.com, you have to wait eight days before you can watch that episode. Now, obviously, companies like other cable companies and things like that have on-demand and things like that, and that kind of defeats the purpose of having people go on to on-demand when they can just go right online from anywhere, you know. So it makes it less appealing, basically. I think that's part of the reason why they stopped doing that, why they get what they put the eight-day lock in place. But I, I don't think it's right. I really don't think it's right, especially on channels like Fox, like stations like Fox, because they're not cable channels in the first place. You know, I mean, they're broadcast networks like Fox are not HBO, right? I don't require a subscription to these networks. I think that they should, uh, we have every right to watch them the next day. And I am a paying subscriber to my cable company. I do pay for my internet. So it's not like I'm just freeloading. I mean, I am paying something. I just think it's a little ridiculous just because I don't have a cable box or anything like that or a satellite box that I'm not allowed to watch the episode the next day. So I think it's a little silly, but some would argue that it's worth it just to pay a small subscription to Hulu or to Netflix. And ultimately, I said I wasn't going to do anything, but it turns out I, I ended up just picking up and re-upping a Netflix subscription so I could just watch content anyway. And that works out just great. You know, I end up paying a small fee for that, but still the whole idea of it is, is a little frustrating, That the fact that I had to do that. And I'm, I'm glad I did, and only because I, I haven't used Netflix in a while, and I found that it's a lot better than it used to be. So I'm glad that I kind of rediscovered Netflix, but I'm not happy that I'm not able to get that next day content right from Fox. Dot com. I think that's a little silly. I think that should change, but unfortunately, I think it may go the other way. I think other networks may pick this up. I don't know. But if you read the article on the website, you'll see I go in a little more in-depth about it uh, as far as how I feel about the whole paying for the Internet, paying money to the cable company for the Internet, and not being able to watch content from broadcasters like Fox because I don't have a set-top box. I think that's a little silly. But anyway, as things go, we are going to wrap things up here. Uh, I'd like to thank you once again for listening to episode two of the Geek with Envy podcast, and we are looking forward to making many more. So stay tuned, I guess we could say, uh, or subscribe to our podcasts, and we will continue to update them weekly. Once again, I am Richard Vincenti Jr. with geekwithenvy.com, and you have a great day. <laughs>